Welcome to Sagittarius Eye Audio Edition, issue 20, April 3305. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Sagittarius Eye magazine, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed out in the black. Editorial For most of its life, Sagittarius Eye was based out on fairly rudimentary rented offices in a peripheral concourse of Lave Station. From there, the growing team wrote articles, designed the magazine and created our popular video bulletins. In September 3304, disaster struck. A group of agitators calling themselves the Alchemy Den, led by the enigmatic commander Alboric, chose the Saggi office as a target for a politically motivated attack designed to raise awareness of the incipient Togoi threat to the core walls of the bubble. The political validity of such an attack aside, the office was devastated, and one long-serving reporter was lost. The magazine's partners, the SPVFA Photography Group, kindly lent us a Lacon Type 10 Defender, into which we moved what was left of our equipment. Months later, in January 3305, the team received a piece of good news. Police had finally been secured for Saji on a new office building in Makulung Ring, Miles. After some success over the previous months, we drew upon our increased resources to set up a security and operations wing to support our journalism and prevent an attack of that nature again. Sagittarius I now exists as a faction in Miles, with an operations contact at each station in that system. The cooperative ensures that Miles remains a safe, neutral space in which to create galactic class media. Interested commanders are welcome to come and visit us here. If you'd like to apply to join our operations team and protect independent journalism in the bubble, drop into our online office. You can also join our squadron, search for Sagittarius I in your ship's squadron's index, and verify that the squadron ID is Sagi, S-A-G-I currently only set up for the PC variants of ship control software. Structure of the Superpowers, the Federation. In issue 10 of this magazine, we discuss the history of the Federation. In this issue, we look at the state of the superpower today, the structure of government, distribution of power, and way of life within it. For more than a millennium, Humanity has been expanding its civilization from Earth outwards into thousands of different star systems. That expansion has been fitful, dependent on the available technology and the collective will of those brave souls who volunteer for hard lives as colonial pioneers. As the reach of our species lengthens, so too does its political diversity. Central administrative control of such vast interstellar territories will always be imperfect, with leaders unable to react quickly to events at far distances. Nevertheless, allegiances remain and trillions of people accept the rule of distant governments and officials they will never see during their lifetime. The Federation, the Empire and the Alliance all maintain differently evolved government structures. In some ways, each are reactions to the methodologies of the others and they retain certain strengths and weaknesses that were inherent in the national and international models from which they developed. Each government treats its citizens differently as well, favoring a selection of rights and privileges for individuals that are considered inalienable by those who have them, but are actually part of the cultural identity of the faction itself. In this article, 
we will begin taking an in-depth look at the first and oldest of the interstellar superpowers, the Federation. After some failed starts, human civilization established itself in a small cluster of different star systems. These were Tau Ceti, Altair, Delta Pavonis, and Beta Hydrae. Corporate-slash-government partnership lay at the heart of humanity's first successful ventures beyond the Sol system. That heritage is reflected in the political infrastructure of the Federation, which is, essentially, the inheritor of Earth's capitalist vision. A Federation citizen sees themselves as patriotic and self-made. The link to Sol and Earth is a strong bond that holds up across thousands of light years. The dream of carving out a life for oneself in commerce, trade, entertainment, or as a new colonist is continually fed back to the many billions of federal citizens via the voracious, multi-platformed news media. Status in the Federation is distinguished between haves and have-nots. People are practical and materialistic. They value convenience and brands. Often, Brands promote a way of life associated with their products and offer discounts to customers who are prepared to wear their logo. It is not uncommon to see federal citizens earning regular income from brand-associated tasks, whether they are simply dropping product names into conversations or engaging in more elaborate promotions. Homeowners sell roof and wall space to commercial sponsors, watch adverts, perform tasks and wear corporate logos. Corporate contracts for workers can also stipulate restrictions on what products those workers use, how they vote in elections, and anything else that might advance the agenda of the businesses in question. Those who accept this way of life are supported with medical insurance, transport assistance, and a raft of subsidies to their living expenses. This advertising culture and the resulting passion for instant gratification, materialism, trends and fashions define social hierarchies and groups. Commercial organizations compete as aggressively as the law will allow for the time and attention of the federal citizen who goes through life bombarded by advertising while following their contractual obligations. In many ways, this is a similar life to those who live on fully incorporated planets. However, unlike those corporate worlds, Federation space is a battleground of commerce. This makes the average federal citizen a mixture of a brand-loyal and bargain-basement consumer. In the core worlds, passion for the latest news, tech and clothes is motivation for many otherwise unsatisfying career paths. Media consumption is an hourly pastime, vocation and necessity. Federal citizens are constantly sold a materialistic dream. Those outside of the corporation's benevolence are left to fend for themselves at the mercy of Lady Fate. This means there is a lot of inequality on some Federation worlds, as only those who have the opportunity, and the means to best exploit it, get ahead. Culturally, the Federation is quite tolerant of some things, like religions, but is utterly intolerant of drug use, political activism, slavery, and certain other cultures. There is a media-driven morality with regards to corruption and white-collar crime. The unspoken rule is, don't get caught or be seen as dirty. Getting one over the system is a tradition that remains deeply intertwined with the self-made vision of getting ahead. This materialistic veneer distracts citizens from real political issues and abuse of power. The Federation is a federated democracy made up of states and systems. A state is something of a changeable term, it can be part of a continent, an entire continent, 
a planet or a whole system. The categorization is determined, roughly, by population of up to a few tens of millions of people. The term is used a lot and generally outside of the core. Each system is a state. To an outsider, the hierarchy of federal society is based on democratic principles. However, corporate loyalty oils the machine. Citizens vote for the candidates their brands endorse. Campaigns are funded by businesses looking to obtain a return through supportive legislation. Unfortunately, the profusion of competing business interests that are represented on legislative bodies can paralyze them as each corporation maneuvers to gain the best advantage. Voting takes place within a system or state electing congressmen and senators. Voting also takes place federally to elect a new president. Terms of office are much longer than they were in the past. As the early days of the Federation proved that many years are needed for a presidential administration to see policies through on an interstellar level. Presidents have an eight-year term with a midterm vote of confidence at four years. Getting ahead and getting noticed in Federation society requires money. Whilst lineage and prestigious name carry some weight, money is what really talks. For some, corporate representation is a lifelong commitment and sometimes even more than that. Families are known to support commercial organizations from generation to generation. Success within that organization brings with it status, financial reward and security. However, other individuals divide their support, picking and choosing sides in the war of commerce that perpetuates Federation society. Corporate-slash-government partnership requires commodification and innovation. In a successful, if somewhat corrupt, partnership, a business might bring an idea to elected officials, lobbying to get it on the agenda for discussion. Then, democratic forums debate the idea and pass the motions to see it enacted. The business then presents itself as the means by which the idea can be made into policy, winning a hefty government contract along the way. However, with competing lobbies from a host of different corporations, the road from suggestion to action is a highly contested one. This structure of advancement and competition also serves to negate any prospect of consensus or long-term strategy. The immediate needs of each corporation are the priority in any forum where their representatives have decision-making or voting power. Again, this turns many of the local government structures into ineffective bureaucracies that cannot provide the kind of transformative leadership their citizens may want. This, in some respects, is all part of the real agenda. Corporate interests are kept in balance by forcing competition. This is capitalism writ large into a democratic system. It is rare for individuals to be empowered by the federal senate or a star system authority. For the most part, individuals acquire personal power to obtain freedoms from the onerous complexities of federal bureaucracy, but it can also be used for more sinister aims. This is a structurally endorsed method of bribery and creates a shadowy oligarchy in the highest tier of federal society. The people who belong to this upper class believe they are above the law. Despite all of this, things get done. Laws are passed and battle fleets are built and deployed. Wars are fought. Much of this seems miraculous to any individual trying to achieve something within the layers of bureaucracy. But there are always ways. Visitor's Guide to Barnard's Loop 
There is no other region so beautiful to behold and so deeply steeped in mystery as the Orion complex. The area holds several nebulae and this article will guide you to one of the most outstanding ones, Barnard's Loop. In the constellation of Orion there is a famous emission nebula, visible to humans since ancient times, albeit only in the darkest of nights, Barnard's Loop. It is named after Edward Emerson Barnard, an American astronomer of the 19th century. Through a ship's canopy filters and enhancers, the loop looks like a big dark reddish arc centred on the Orion Nebula. With an approximate diameter of 300 light years, it has long aided explorers to get their bearings as far as the Sagittarius Gap Far Rim and acted as a final beacon on a long journey home. Barnard's Loop is part of a much larger cosmic structure called the Orion Molecular Cloud Complex OMC, a vast and sometimes diffuse area of dust clouds, nebulae and stellar nurseries. The word molecular is significant. Molecules, mostly hydrogen, carbon monoxide and even silicates and graphite, are a basic requirement of planet formation and they can only form in cold, dense clouds of dust where they are not atomised by the heavy radiation of nearby massive stars. Those massive stars, on the other hand, are the jewels of the complex, strikingly beautiful, hot-burning orbs that are capable of illuminating the various nebulae that dot the Orion molecular cloud. This is what makes Barnard's Loop an emission nebula. Orion is full of very massive and energetic stars, like the famous belt stars Mintaka, Alnitak and Alnilam. The latter can only be found in ship navigation software under its Bayer designation of Epsilon Orionis. Their radiation is so intense that it pumps up electrons in the surrounding gas, which then fall back emitting light at the characteristic frequencies of their host atoms and molecules. Sounds inviting? Good. Now how do we get there? First of all, many explorers consider a visit to Barnard's Loop a proof of fire for those starting their careers. The area is not easy to navigate and there are a number of sectors that have been completely permit locked for travel by the Pilots' Federation. The reasons for this are unknown. This means any traveller heading to the loop needs to plan ahead. This planning should include outfitting your ship, a jump range of at least 30 light years is recommended. Also, pack a large fuel scoop, a trusty SRV and maybe a stack of materials for frameshift drive FSD, synthesis. Once you're done, the average exploration ship is ready to go. Next, map the roop. The permit lock sectors pretty much sit around the loop and shield it from trespassers. To avoid backtracking and a lengthy detour, first go for Rigel, Beta Orionis. This is a very bright supergiant and is also a good point to access the area. A pilot might choose to visit HIP 23759 and the Witch Head Science Centre, but making directly for the loop after this should be avoided as this route is blocked by the huge COL 70 sector, which is entirely permit locked. Instead, go for the Spirograph sector and the system BD-121172. This way, the trip will also include the beautiful Spirograph Nebula. It is a mere 250 light years, so why not? The Spirograph Nebula, IC418, is a small planetary nebula some 1100 light years from Sol. Its central star system contains a number of landable planets for the intrepid explorer and there are some magnificent vistas including a number of notable stellar phenomena and a Sanchez-class science megaship which happens to be under infrequent attack. There are now two options to go further. One, 
to go straight for the Orion Nebula and through the densely populated Orion Trapezium Cluster, also known as Theta-1 Orionis. The cluster was once thought to hold an intermediate black hole, much like the Great Annihilator near the core, but the theory could not withstand what explorers called FSD astronomy, going there and having a look. Still, it holds a number of highly unusual stars and gives the opportunity to fly right through the Orion Nebula. Check out EZ Orionis, a yellow giant star roughly as massive as Sol, but more than 210 times its size. Go further and visit Theta-2 Orionis, Paranago 2149 or HR1918, a system containing a black hole. This is a sight to behold and a trip to remember. Option 2 is plotting a route through Sigma Orionis. It is a pentuple system and currently the largest star system known with its fifth stellar body orbiting the primary at a staggering 0.24 light years. It is also the entryway to the lesser known Sigma Orionis cluster a somewhat dispersed group of stars born out of the diffuse nebulosities that dot the surrounding of the loop. HR1950 is also worth visiting at this time. The system contains a neutron star, which is always a nice sight and can be useful for a boosted jump. From the cluster, one can either take a detour to Messier 78 or continue onwards. Messier 78 is a reflection nebula higher up on the galactic plane and there are a number of interesting sites there, including 47 Omega Orionis, a massive B-type star holding a neutron star in its clutches. Another option could be to continue to go up, further, and eventually over the loop towards the Orion Dark Region, an extremely dense dust cloud that will probably give birth to a new generation of stars soon, in astronomical terms. However, for the sake of a magnificent trip, we suggest something else. No matter which approach route is chosen, make sure to visit the Flame Nebula, NGC 2024. Not only is this another stunningly beautiful location, but it is also the entry ticket into the area between Barnard's Loop and the fabled Horsehead Nebula, Barnard 33. It is here that the pilots notice the stellar density lessening. In 3305, and with a suitably ranged ship, this is not a problem at all. But the first waves of brave explorers in their Cobras, Asps and earlier ships struggled with the increasing distances. On the way, one can pay homage to the Horsehead Dark Region, an incredibly dense cloud of dust and gas. This is where images for hollow fact postcards showing a familiar horse's head immersed in a field of red and blue were taken. This small cloud is what gave the area its name. The trapezium, or Orion sectors, will run right through most of the Orion molecular cloud, without putting you at risk of running into another permit lock wall. Should difficulties be encountered with the lockdown Horsehead Dark Region sector, go up a bit until the Orion Dark Region is reached, which is not permit locked. If FSD range allows, try to make a push for the Messier 78 sector, which is located at a completely different spot than the namesake nebula. This is what makes the region a bit awkward to navigate, and that is the chief reason to bring a decently ranged ship. Barnard's Loop is about 300 light years from top to bottom and almost that wide. This leaves an immense area to explore. A trip to HD 37397 system is highly advisable. Apart from two massive B-type stars, the system holds a black hole in a very tight orbit around its companion. HD 37804, a yellow baby giant star with some 13 solar radii, is also worth visiting. The system has a number of landable planets suitable for parking with a stellar view. Enjoy! Another must-see is the HD 38563 triplet. 
Although it's not really a trinary system, these three systems are gravitationally bound with its central white giant star of HD 385636C at the centre. C is in itself a quintuple system where the primary forces three K-type stars and a G-type into its orbit. The other two stars of the triplet, named HD 385636 North and South respectively, are located roughly a light year away with their own complicated orbits and tidal forces. Now, how about a different route back? We mentioned going up when exploring Barnard's Loop, but at some point this route will meet the ubiquitous Coal 70 sector again, blocking the way towards going zero on the galactic plane. So why not try something different? Perhaps try to go deep, deep below the plane until eventually reaching the Uchores sector, which is a very remote place. Navigating back to the bubble at 800 below can be tricky, even for a dedicated pilot. But is it also rewarding seeing the beauty of the Orion molecular cloud from below and against the dust of the Milky Way? Another possible route is to head towards the Coal 69 sector and the Lambda Orionis cluster, which is Kalinda 69. Another prominent member of the Orion molecular cloud and an indicator of how large it really is. The cluster is relatively young and believed to have formed in a succession of supernova blasts. If you want to get a sense of direction, type LAM01 Orionis or HD245140 into the galaxy map. Like most clusters around, exploring it is a mighty tale of its own to tell. From here, your return journey could take whatever form you like. Perhaps pay the California Nebula a visit, or even go to the Jiminga Pulsar, PSR J0633 plus 1746, which, some people think, is a hot contender for having started it all in the Orion complex. If a much longer trip is in the works, why not dive deeply into the adjacent Monoceros constellation, the realm of the unicorn, covered in our last issue. The way back is up to you. Here our guide ends. If you make the trip and find this guide useful, let us know via our submissions page. Fly safe. Snake Off. Crate Mark II versus Python. The introduction of the Crate Mark II by Falcon de Lacy last year left a number of commanders asking the question, has the Python finally lost its grip on the market? On the face of it, the new crate appears to fill a similar role to the Python. It fits on a medium pad, it has similar hardpoint configurations but with certain enhancements such as having the capability to carry ship launched fighters. Now that the Crate Mark II and its sibling the Crate Phantom have been available for a few months, we can truly make an assessment. The Python we know and love has been around for a long time. The basic space frame we fly today has a clear and direct lineage back to the shipyards of Watt and Pritney Space Construct W &P, in the year 2700. Named after the non-venomous snake genus Pythonidae, the Python holds the distinction of being the ship in longest continuous production in history, although it could be argued that today's Python has little in common with the ship that launched back in 2700. The Python has lumbered on during these years, unsexy but undoubtedly good at its job, forming the backbone of many a trade route. As the last century began the design was suffering from a lack of development and it was showing. By the 3250s it was considered slow, poorly defended and obsolete but W&P doggedly continued to manufacture the vessel relying on the goodwill of its corporate clients. The author of the popular ship buyers guide of that era, the larger than life Big Bob is a catty, 
lamented in the 3250 edition of his guide, I used to wonder if I would ever own a python. Now I wonder if I can ever sell it. The python was on the verge of oblivion when, due to a complex set of corporate actions and mergers, Falcon de Lacy gained the design information and the rights to build the ship. Rather than abandon the design, de Lacy decided that it still held promise. It was significantly refreshed by adding the standard modular internal layout system used today and marketed as the jack of all trades. Gone were the two rather inflexible gun mounts and four missile mounts replaced by three standard class 3 and two class 2 hardpoints upon which the owner could fit any standard hardpoint module. Out were the old Exlon 76NN drives to be replaced with modern class 6 thrusters and a class 5 frameshift drive. The refreshed python was a vast improvement without fundamentally changing what made the python what it was. Thanks to being able to do nearly any job while still being able to land at outposts it has proven popular especially amongst mission runners. The crate we can buy today is a new design however it's worth considering its predecessor as the modern crate mark 2 was clearly designed with the older ship in mind. The crate has always been a Falcon de Lacy design. The first iteration taking flight in 3027. Once again the snake tradition was followed. The crate deriving its name from the common name of the genus Bungarus, a family of venomous snakes from Southeast Asia on Earth. The crate light speeder as it was referred to in marketing material at the time was designed as a single crude fighter. Unlike the python the crate light speeder did not endure. It was not originally designed to be hyperspace capable and as such began to fall by the wayside as commercial markets started to demand ships that could jump between stars. The ships adherents persevered and eventually crates were retrofitted with hyperspace capabilities but by the 3250s these ships had been long out of production. The remaining ships were the rare favourites of explorers, pirates and rebels with several taking part in the revolutionary battles in the Lave system in 3265 where their limitations were fatally exposed. Today the only crate lightspeeders still in existence are static museum pieces. The ship has retained its adherents and followers however. So in 3304 Falcon de Lacy decided to cash in on that goodwill and revive the name and a good part of the concept. The crate mark 2 is only superficially related to its older sibling. Part of the crate lightspeeders allure was its clean arrowhead shape and Falcon de Lacy wished to retain this aspect. Today's mark 2 is a much larger ship similar in size to the python. The crate lightspeeder had a reputation for speed and manoeuvrability and de Lacy have worked hard to carry this over into the new model despite the increase in size. A superficial comparison of the crate mark 2's internals with those of the python certainly has promoted the idea that the new crate is basically a faster better python. Things are rarely quite that simple though. One thing is certain, the crate mark 2 has proven a massive hit for Falcon de Lacy. On its official launch date the exclusive pilots federation station Jameson Memorial in Shinrata Desra reported that every single medium pad had a brand new crate mark 2 parked on it and commanders were lining up to get their hands on one. The station reported that it had not seen such a buying frenzy for a new ship design in decades 
and it had handily beaten even the excitement around the launch of the Lacon tank series the Alliance, Challenger, Crusader and Chieftain. Part of the reason people see the Crate Mark II succeeding the Python is because a glance over the hardpoints and internals of both ships reveals that they share 3 large and 2 medium hardpoints as well as 4 utility mounts. Both can mount a class 6 shield, both have a class 7 power distributor and both have a class 7 power plant. They even use the same size frameshift drives. Look a bit deeper though and differences emerge. You'll find that the Crate Mark II can also take a ship launched fighter SLF, a capacity the Python lacks. However, the Python has slightly stronger shield coverage, basic unengineered 6A shields give the Python 398 megajoules of shielding versus the Crate's 350. As you start to add boosters and engineer the shields the Python retains its advantage in shield strength. For example, engineering that brings the Python up to 1.75GJ of absolute shielding brings the crate up to only 1.53GJ. The Python also wins on hull too. The basic military grade composite upgrade will give a Python an absolute hull strength of 910 but the crate only 770. The Python comes out on top in terms of protection then. However, the crate makes up over the python when you consider the active side of combat, damage per second, DPS, speed and manoeuvrability. Like the crate light speeder of the past, the Mark II is quick and has good pitch and roll rates and, with some engineering visits, can boost indefinitely with just one pip to engines, even with grade 5 dirty drag drive modifications to the thrusters. Being able to keep the power distribution focused on weapons or systems and not worry too much about engines gives the crate a huge advantage over its older stablemate. When it comes to speed a typical combat loadout for the python will boost to 488 meters per second but the crate will sail on past at 541 meters per second with the same level of engineering. The better manoeuvrability, speed and boostability of the crate will also make fixed weapons a practical proposition. In the hands of a capable combat pilot the extra damage per second of fixed weapons and their immunity to chaff is highly desirable. Then comes the coup de grace, the crate's fighter bay. A ship launched fighter in the hands of a good pilot is like having an additional class 4 huge hardpoint that flies. For instance, the class 4 beam laser has, off the shelf, a DPS of 41.4. When thinking purely about tech and capability, the fixed beam Imperial Gelid F fighter has a DPS of 45. It is essentially an absurdly manoeuvrable gun that flies independently of the mothership. Of course, there's also the cost of the pilot to consider. Thanks to the SLF, the extra speed and manoeuvrability and the practicality of the use of fixed weapons the Crate Mark II is a clear winner against the Python despite the Python's greater defensive capabilities. The Python has always been seen foremost as a trade ship which can defend itself. Whereas the old Crate Lightspeeder was first and foremost a fighter with little capacity for anything else. The new Crate Mark II however could make a perfectly viable trader. But is it a challenger to the Python in this respect? If we take a look at the basic stats for both ships, 
the Python has the following internals available for trade, mission or passenger activities. 3 class 6 2 class 5 1 class 4 2 class 3 and 1 class 2. The Crate Mark II by contrast has one fewer class 6 internal module bay. This doesn't sound like much of a difference but if you fill both ships with cargo racks and stick with a class 6 shield the Python will carry 228 tons versus the Crate's 164 tons. Put like that it's a significant difference. A Crate aficionado might remind you that for mission work you're often not filling the cargo hold to the brim so perhaps the advantage isn't all it seems. This may be so but an extra slot is also extra flexibility. The Python can carry the largest available passenger cabin class 6 while carrying as much cargo as a crate equipped with only cargo holds and a shield. Consider the commander whose job it is to see to it that as many contracts as possible are fulfilled in the NEAT system. The nearest outpost in that system is some 16,000 light seconds from the primary star so it's a long drag out there and a visiting pilot needs to maximise the number of jobs taken at once. There's no shipyard at any of the outposts so you can't have other ships brought along to do specialist jobs. The ship you take has to be able to do everything. You can equip a python to be able to carry passengers, carry cargo and do many types of combat mission all at the same time although this writer would suggest you don't begin the combat jobs until after your cargo and passengers have been dropped off. You can maximise the list of jobs you can take from the far off outposts and minimise time transiting back and forth to them. With the crate however you will have to sacrifice one of these abilities. If you arrive at the outpost and find you've sacrificed the wrong ability ...well it's been a long trip out for nothing. The clear winner here is the python. It remains the undisputed king of mission runners. And not just against the crate. There's not another ship in service that matches the python's flexibility for being able to simultaneously take a wide variety of missions to all destinations. The old Crate Lightspeeder was a flawed exploration ship with its optional long range aerial pylon mounts on the wings. The designers clearly didn't consider that their pilot might need more modules and carry space than the small ship could cope with. When considering exploration loadouts the Crate Mark II just wins on range over the Python but the Python with its extra class 6 slot wins on flexibility and survivability. Applying a typical long duration exploration build to both ships class 4 shields, surface reconnaissance vehicle hangar, hull repair limpet controller and auto field maintenance unit with a range engineered A rated FSD will give a maximum jump range of 48.6 light years for the Python and 51.2 for the Crate Mark II. So the Crate's edge in jump range is slight. The extra class 6 slot that the python has means it has everything it needs for long duration exploring as well as the ability to fuel rat making it the better fleet exploration ship. A common error that pilots make is to think exploration is just about maximising jump range. This error tends to be exposed during the first unintended litho breaking incident or when mistakes are made on high g planets or worse still 
if you are unlucky enough to meet what is colloquially known as a murder hobo. The extra shield and hull strength of the python may mean the unfortunate pilot only has to change their flight suit whereas the crates commander might have to endure the remlock ride of shame back to populated space as well as the inevitable loss of exploration data. All things considered the python just about has the edge on long duration exploration but for shorter duration trips either ship will serve. You'll get a better view from the cockpit of a crate and it's more fun to fly. We can't leave this topic without talking about the crate phantom, de Lacy's newest variant of the ship. The crate phantom is inferior to the python in all respects except for one. Exploration. This isn't surprising as the Phantom was explicitly designed as a more lightweight variant of the Mark II. It has the same number of module slots as the Crate Mark II but the slots are smaller, only one class 6 instead of 2 and one of the class 4 slots is replaced by a class 3. The decrease in mass manifests as a significantly increased jump range. Using a comparable long duration exploration build the Phantom will jump 57 light years, a significant increase over both the Python and the Crate Mark II. However, many would argue that the Crate Phantom is more meaningfully compared to Lacon's venerable Asp Explorer than the Python, even if it's not quite in the same price bracket. It's notable that all of these ships use the same size modules, notably the Class 5 frameshift drive. So if you've spent time engineering a Python for exploration, find you don't like it and would prefer the Crate Mark II or the Crate Phantom, your efforts spent getting the engineering done have not gone to waste. And the winner is... At least in the mind of this writer the Crate Mark II has most certainly not made the Python obsolete. While the Crate is a much better combat ship the Python's real strength lies in its flexibility as a mission runner and this is the real reason people still buy this venerable design today. The crate for all its strengths can't quite pull this job off nearly as well as the python. As such the python can expect to enjoy a production run of many more years to come. If anything the launch of the crate has highlighted the python's excellent flexibility. The crate mark II rather than being a python successor stands in its own right as a very competent combat machine which can be refitted for other roles too. This is evident in Thargoid conflict systems in which many pilot federation members are choosing the Crate Mark II as their weapon of choice. And by the way it turns out we have all been pronouncing Crate incorrectly all along. The snakes name should be pronounced to rhyme with Kite not Crate. However were this distinction observed we would have been deprived of nearly a year of puns, a privation this publication could not countenance. We are Mobius. You've heard of them, but unless you're a member, you don't know much about them. Who are Mobius? Within the Pilots Federation, there are almost as many philosophies as there are pilots. Some choose to embrace conflict with other members as a means of proving their dominance or getting what they want. Others reject and avoid such pilot versus pilot PvP conflict as wasteful and futile. Many of these choose to rally under the Mobius banner. The core ethos of the Mobius movement is simple. 
Don't ruin another commander's day. This is essentially a reinvigoration of the ancient Wheaton's Law. Don't be a dick. The movement was not born of a single person, though the group does take its name from one of the early leaders, Commander Mobius. These days, some 40,000 commanders follow the Mobian way, going about their own business safe in the knowledge that they can call upon their thousands of brothers and sisters for aid in times of need, and offering up the fruits of their experience to others in need of assistance. Mobius is often branded by those outside its ranks as a group of pacifists, care bears, or as fearful cowards who run from conflict. This isn't true. Mobius does have a strict policy of non-aggression between members, and even encourages conflict avoidance with other members of the Pilots' Federation, but it would be folly to believe a Mobian commander easy prey. Mobius is much less formally organized than many might think. At the apex of responsibility, not power, are the moderators. These commanders are not leaders in any conventional sense. They do not provide instruction or guidance. They are simply gatekeepers. They handle membership applications, perform security and background checks, and ultimately prosecute infractions against the Mobius Code. Because Mobius is such a large group with members in a great many factions, the moderators need to maintain impartiality and not show favoritism to any one faction over another. Amongst the dizzying array of factions in the galaxy are the Mobius factions. These are groups that bear the Mobius name, and either hold territory in the name of Mobius, or perform some other specific function with a clearly defined operational mandate. At present, there are two formal territorial factions, the Order of Mobius and the Mobius Colonial Republic Navy, MCRN. There are also two other non-territorial groups, the Mobius Exploration Corps, MEC, and the Mobius Xenocorps. A great many of the commanders within Mobius migrate their support between these groups, or even serve in multiple groups simultaneously. The Order of Mobius is the oldest and largest of the dedicated Mobius groups. Headquartered out of Rafferty's Mobius, an Orbis starport in the Azrael system, the faction is governed by a council of admirals, with Mobius himself at the head of the table. The Admiralty manages the day-to-day -day push and pull of galactic politics. During the summer of 3304, the Order came under sustained attack from a then-unknown foe, later revealed to be the Smiling Dog Crew, SDC. It suffered substantial territorial losses, though these have since been restored. At present, the Order has controlling interests in six systems. Animosity between SDC and the Order is long-running and deeply ingrained, given their opposing ideological positions on PvP conflict. SDC allegedly even included the ambush and destruction of a Mobian as part of their membership initiation process. With tightening security, this has become much harder, and during 3304, SDC moved to other targets. Though the Order does maintain a strong core of dedicated commanders to undertake missions, it can also call upon a large transient population of regular Mobian pilots to provide cartographic data and short-term support as and when they're needed. 
The Mobius Colonial Republic Navy had its beginnings in the Colonia expansion. Earning a place in the third wave and establishing a base, Peterson's legacy in the Mobius system. Mobia 1A, where the base is located, is affectionately known as Peterson's Potato. Initially expansionist, the Mobius Colonial Republic Navy laid claim to a number of nearby systems. This ultimately led to a devastating conflict with their closest neighbors, the Privateers Alliance Expeditionary Force, PAEF. The astrocartographic makeup of Colonia meant that both Mobius Colonial Republic Navy and Privateers Alliance Expeditionary Force were boxed in, with only limited expansion potential. Mobius Colonial Republic Navy had taken ownership of both the potential expansion routes, and from then, poor communication ratcheted up tension and mistrust. The end result was a long and bitter war. By the time a call for help went out, the Mobius Colonial Republic Navy was already shattered and on its knees. A small cadre of commanders from the Mobius Exploration Corps responded, traveling from their exploration of the Hawking Gap to bolster the Mobius Colonial Republic Navy's defenses. The fighting defined the Mobius Colonial Republic Navy for the better part of a year, until an internal coup replaced the faction leadership, effectively hollowing out the Mobius Colonial Republic Navy and replacing it with members of the Mobius Exploration Corps. The change of leadership allowed for the unthinkable to occur. The Mobius Colonial Republic Navy and the Privateers Alliance Expeditionary Force began to talk to each other again. A ceasefire came into force, which was extended to allow ongoing negotiations. Mobius Colonial Republic Navy, for the first time, recognized the claims of Privateers Alliance Expeditionary Force to the Alberta system and proposed a phased handover of power to allow Privateers Alliance Expeditionary Force expansion. This was important because it paved the way to a fundamentally different path for both factions and brought peace to their corner of Colonia. Both Mobius Colonial Republic Navy and Privateers Alliance Expeditionary Force now stand together, calling out aggressive factions in Colonia and demanding the restoration of all the home systems to their founding factions. The modern Mobius Colonial Republic Navy has cast off expansionism in favor of stability, and now holds controlling interests in only two other systems, Desi and Hamlet's Harmony. Despite its limited hold on Colonia territories, Mobius Colonial Republic Navy pilots frequently fly in support of a wider alliance of factions dedicated to stability and the safety of the colonial homeworlds. Several years ago, a small band of Mobian explorers set off into the Formidine Rift to find the Zurara. What began with just three commanders quickly grew to more than twenty, as the expedition picked up momentum and the Mobius Exploration Corps was formed. Today, the Mobius Exploration Corps boasts almost 450 commanders scattered across the black. Every quarter, the Mobius Exploration Corps holds an expedition, giving members the opportunity to come together out in the black, although at present, most of the membership are engaged in Distant Worlds too. Mobius Exploration Corps holds a strong position on the Squadron Exploration leaderboard. In the latter part of 3304, Mobius Exploration Corps members voted to adopt Mobia as their home base 
and to formally support the MCRN. This has led to a situation where most MCRN commanders also serve in the Mobius Exploration Corps, and vice versa. Established in late 3304 as a Mobius-based reaction force to the Thargoid threat, the Mobius Xenocorps actually have more than just an anti-Thargoid remit. They are tasked with a mission that is both military and scientific, to investigate, gauge, and contain potential Xeno threats. Early expeditions investigated the Guardians, but increasing Thargoid activity has promoted the need for military action over scientific research. Mobius is by far the largest Pilots' Federation entity, standing for collaboration in a hostile galaxy. Long a fixture of the spaceways, today they exist as much an intrinsic piece of the galactic infrastructure as a mere group. If collaboration, rather than conflict, with other pilots appeals to you, you might want to seek them out. Pulses Beyond the Plane There is a strange group of pulsars far below the galactic plane. How did they come to be there? And why are they included in the standard Pilots Federation galaxy map? The Milky Way is full of wondrous places. A supermassive black hole capable of holding billions of stars in its orbit, vast clouds of heated gas in between, giants and dwarves and vast fields of neutron stars that have sunk to the galaxy's bottom. Wonders upon wonders. But ask yourself, does it all end at the far fringes of the galaxy? Are there no fantastic places past its outer limits? An observant explorer delving deeply into astronomy will already know the answer. Of course there are. You just need to go looking. The galaxy map has a convenient search function. You type in a name or number and are safely guided to the next best search result. It is an invaluable tool with hundreds of billions of stars to visit. Countless curious explorers have used it to follow rumours, to find lucrative markets, to complete their constellation trip or search for the most unusual stars and planets. Still, you need a name to search for the right star so all commanders rely on some method to find them. Some of these elusive places have old catalogue names, mostly acronyms for some long gone sky survey when astronomy was still in its infancy. One of these acronyms is PSR which stands for Pulsating Source of Radio or a pulsar. A pulsar is a neutron star emitting tight beams of radiation along its poles strong enough to be observed at a distance. Back in the pre-spaceflight age such observations could only be made from Earth or its near orbit. A pulsar's beam axis is tilted from its rotational axis. The beams did not constantly hit Earth but in pulses hence the name. Today with thousands of settled planets every neutron star can be considered a pulsar because its beams will be observable on some colony eventually. As a result the term has become something of an anachronism. Because these objects are so fascinating and alien some of them have jets travelling at more than 0.1 the speed of light while others have magnetic fields a billion times stronger than souls. Many fascinated explorers wanted to visit and study them up close. When they did not know how else to go looking for them they eventually uploaded the ancient star catalogues and just started to enter PSR into the galaxy map. And they must have been surprised because they were led to strange places indeed. 
You may expect to be guided to a pulsar drifting around somewhere in one of the spiral arms, but nothing could be farther from that. Just entering PSR will lead you to an empty space far far below the galactic plane. A very careful observer will briefly see a small group of objects on the map. However, they almost immediately vanish again but when you keep hitting the search button you will eventually spot more of them. There are roughly a dozen of these distant objects. We asked a famous explorer, Jackie Silver, about this phenomenon. Commander Silver has been involved in extensive studies of the makeup of the galaxy's spiral arms, universal cartographic sector codification and the survey of a vast number of stars from the old catalogues. On these particular pulsars she said They are part of the 47 Ticane NGC 104 globular cluster. If you are quick on the draw and catch the gal map before it glitches the names off your display you can catch the names of the pulsars. Yes. The 47 Tucane Open Cluster. The name comes with an aura. The cluster lies in the constellation of Tucana which was named after a colourful bird of Earth's past. If you need a sense of direction search for Pi Tucane. Now go for another 11,000 light years towards the small Magellanic Cloud and you're there. Again Commander Silver gives us a rough idea of what a globular cluster is. A globular cluster is a large ball of stars held together by gravity. At their centres they are very dense, similar to the sort of areas we see in a galactic core in 3305. They are found orbiting around the galaxy but as part of the spherical halo not the flat disk. Because they are so dense there is a lot of scope for unusual stars and phenomena there. In addition to this, globular clusters are thought to be the remaining cause of satellite dwarf galaxies that interacted with their parent galaxy, ours, in the past. The clusters have long been stripped of their gas either through star formation or by the tidal forces of the Milky Way. To use a poetic metaphor they are the ancient harbingers of a much younger universe. Imagine standing on a mountain on a world within one of these clusters. When you looked up at the sky you'd see hundreds of stars clustered together, no more than 5 light years distant from one another. It would be an incredible sight and very different from what we're used to seeing at night now, billions of years later. So how do our pulsars play into all this? As Commander Silver stated globular clusters are home to a number of very unusual objects. Some of them are indeed pulsars that formed when the more massive stars of the cluster exploded. Not only that but the complicated gravitational effects in such a dense stellar neighbourhood also intensified their motion and rotation. Nearly all of the currently discovered neutron stars are so called millisecond pulsars rotating many hundreds of times per second. The same intense gravitational forces and high interaction rate of the stars inside the cluster also make possible another strange type of star called a blue straggler. 47 Tucane is full of them and in this case interaction is the mild word for collision. Asked about these blue stragglers Commander Silver said These are stars which do not fit neatly into the main sequence. As the stars in a cluster share their general age, the turn off point, where stars evolve away from the main sequence is well defined. Different clusters have different turn off points depending on their age. Blue stragglers are stars which exist beyond the turn off point which indicates they have formed or evolved differently to the rest of the stars. Possibly they come from star mergers because the clusters are so dense. 
We now know a few details about globular clusters, their locations, their general makeup and the likelihood of unusual stars in them. One question remains though. Why does the Pilot Federation include the pulsars of 47 Tucani in their galaxy map? And why do they not include all the other surveyed stars of the cluster? There are a range of explanations from simple oversight when Universal Cartographics uploaded all those ancient star catalogues to the challenges of maintaining a viable system of astrometric range finding. When it comes to the question of why the rest of the stars are missing system engineers also point out that the galaxy map would be overwhelmed and unable to handle astrometric data of literally thousands of stars adequately in a densely packed sphere a hundred light years wide. Most of these theories are rather scientific and they certainly have merit. The Pilots Federation is known to have included several other halo stars in their galaxy map. Commander Silver gives HD 479 as an example. However there are also some more conspiracy oriented theories. Some speculate the 47 Tucani pulsars are included as a beacon or midpoint towards the Magellanic Clouds. Tin foilers continue to point out that at least one mega corporation has plans to mount an expedition there. Others go so far as to postulate that the pulsars form the end point of an intricate energetic star constellation which holds the ultimate prize in astronomical and astro-esoteric delving, Raxler, the door that is also the key. Although not directly commenting on this theory, Commander Silver has her own thoughts. I think one side of the keyless door is closer to home but who knows where the other sides open. As strange as these theories may sound they have their believers especially after the recent rekindling of the search for that fabled planet. What is certain at least these days is that 47 Tucani seems to be unreachable. The galaxy's halo is too poorly surveyed and stellar density is next to non-existent. Still this has never deterred the daring or the unscrupulous from trying. Flogging it with Yamex. Commander Yamex is a well-known videographer and controversial figure. Over the last four years, he has gathered more than 55,000 followers from every corner of the galaxy. A vocal critic of the Pilots' Federation, he is praised by some for his fearlessness in calling out poor policies, while others condemn him for going too far in his attacks. Yamex is the leader of the Dead Horse Squadron one of the first to reach the maximum membership of 500 pilots. Yamex founded the squadron with the express purpose of demonstrating how impractical the 500 pilot limit is and it is a testament to his popularity. In 3301, Yamex shared his first video aimed at Pilots Federation members, a guide to supporting a given leader in the most efficient way. Since then, he has broadened his subject matter recording entertaining videos on diverse topics relevant to the life of an independent pilot. He is famous for coming up with sneaky ways to earn money faster and make life happier for fellow spacefarers. Yamex publishes scathing ship reviews, vocal in their criticism and grudging in their praise. Many appreciate his perspective as an independent one, unshackled by vested interests. Viewers relish his honest opinions about bad cable management, ill-fitting panels, bad hardpoint alignment or missing cup holders. While ship manufacturers dread the ridicule and negative attention a critical holovid will bring. We finally tracked Yamex down for an interview. 
He is currently planetside, taking a break from the cockpit until something happens interesting enough to make him want to return to space. There are no missions interesting enough, no challenges hard enough, and no secrets secret enough for him to bother with changing the bottle of Lavian brandy for the flight stick and underpants for a spacesuit, he tells us. I've got every ship, done every mission. The only thing that's left at this point would be to find new ways to amuse myself. Hmm, maybe looking at some trippy places would be nice, or just crashing and burning. Well, whatever I end up doing, it should be fun. Otherwise, what's the point? Very few people know much about you, even those in your squadron. Who is Commander Yamex? You see, Yamex has no face. It's an idea, a compilation of opinions that sometimes manifests in a corporeal form to beat a dead horse or a random federal bystander. Why is your squadron so named? Well, what can I say? We like to beat a dead horse. What motivates you to make your videos? Just like everyone else, I wake up in the morning, sit down on my glorious Gutemaya throne and contemplate many things. Through my deep meditation and some intense pushing, I come to many conclusions. How do you feel about the accusation that you're too fierce in your criticism? I suppose it's in Latvian spirit not to shut up and criticize things, even to one's own detriment. Rumors have flown in recent months about supposed contact between you and Thargoids. Is there any truth to these? Oh, for crying out loud! I've found some documents on a totally alive scientist and published the theoretical description of the Kirk maneuver. That's all! At that point, our connection was abruptly lost. Not everyone loves Yamek's unique take on things. Some object to the extent and ferocity of his criticism of the Pilots' Federation authorities, and others find his content puerile. However, Yamex is undeniably popular, and there is certainly no one else quite like him anywhere in the galaxy. Featured Artist Commander Tokoso Occasionally, we like to take the time to shine a light on people who go a long way towards making Sagittarius Eye the best magazine in the galaxy. This month, we want you to meet Commander Toko So. What tools do you use for your work? Besides in-flight captures, I like to use Holosim tools and games such as Planet Coaster, Daz Studio and Space Engine to make my artwork. I try to use the Cobra imaging engine as much as possible, as it makes images feel more legitimate. So even though I'm creating art, I try to keep it grounded in reality as much as possible. Which images are you most proud of? I've done around 600 pieces for the galactic community. I've really enjoyed being able to create the station over New York City from Earth, as it took a lot of work to find the right station, lit the right way, at the right angle to match the original photograph. But I also really like drawing some ink images, as people often think of me as an editor and not as an artist. I also write music for Commander Turgeon, Yamix, Spatula, Ascorbius and Machine, as well as the broadcast and a Distant World 2 theme, the Sagi News theme and some collaborations with the great Miguel Johnson. I'm currently working on a new Distant World song called Let's Jump Together. What aspect of your work is the most challenging? The lighting. You have an idea, and then you have to make your idea into a photograph. You have to get the ship lit the right way, either near an Earth-like or against a gas giant so it's easier to cut out. 
All the planets add different shades to ships and the new holo camera filters add even more color. So now I have to get the ship with the right paint job or kit and then find the right planet with the right colored star. If I'm adding figures to the image, then I have to recreate the lighting for them for it to feel realistic. Also, keeping the images believable and having a bit of humor seems to really help. So it's a real balance between a concept, a pun, and good technical work. How did you become an artist? I've been a community artist for 20 years, as well as a composer for hollow shows and hollow films. I've also worked with musicians with autism for 20 years, the most famous being Commander Daniel Wakeford from The Undateables. I've written six albums with him and we're currently working on a musical. Really, I began playing instruments and drawing at about the age of five. I never went to university, I just recorded and made art. I've written theatre pieces, created art in schools, theatres, hospitals, behaviour units and worked with people of all ages. I love the creativity in people. Everyone has a unique view on things and finding a way to let that out is the best part of my work. I took a break from community work about five years ago and then found my way to the cockpit. Soon after that, I started to become a community artist for fellow pilots. So, spaceflight kind of brought me back to what I love, communities. Now I'm working back in community art again with new vigor. I saw Sajai and immediately fell in love with what they do, as it's purely for the commander community. I think Suvarine messaged me after seeing some of my gal network, and I tried to do as much as I can for them. Still, I have to balance all the communities I work with and also have time for my wife and two kids, and not to mention flying a spaceship. Pieces of Eight, a user's guide to piracy. The taboo career, the one you've never chosen. Sure, we've all hunted bounties, headed off into the black to chart new stars, raked asteroids with our mining lasers, but who amongst us has actually partaken in piracy? In this article, we're not going to weigh up the moral implications of making a living through destructive theft or search for empathy amid the murky criminal undercurrent of the space waves. Like it or not, this is Sagittarius I's guide to stealing stuff from spaceships. Piracy is by far the most complex vocation in the bubble, as it combines a range of different skills and requires the use of a wide assortment of modules. Explains Commander Wiggy B. He's the creator of several notorious holovids on the topic of piracy and a recognised authority on the subject. The wide assortment of modules required means a multi-role ship is preferable. An inexperienced pirate may think that a pure combat ship is a great pirate ship, but in almost all circumstances they would be incorrect. Combat ships like the Viper, Vulture and Ferdelance are a poor choice, as they have a low number of optional module slots. A pirate's ideal ship will instead have a large selection of optional module slots, but it'll also be manoeuvrable and boast hard-hitting weapons. The Python and Imperial Clipper are ideal for the task. The Cobra or Keelback can also be utilised if funds are limited. The first task of a pirate is to strip the victim's shields without destroying the ship outright. Pulse lasers are good for this. They're less demanding on the power distributor and can be engineered with the efficient modification to further ease distributor pressure when sustaining fire. Lasers' low effectiveness against bulkheads is in fact an advantage here. A dead victim can drop no cargo, after all. 
Pilots who are confident in their accuracy may wish to consider plasma accelerators. They'll cut through shields alarmingly quickly. Be careful though, as they're also effective at destroying armour. Next, a pirate should seek to disable the target's internal modules. Multicannons, engineered using the sturdy blueprint, which increases armour piercing, are well suited for this. Alternatively, railguns, particularly with the super-penetrator experimental effect, are unparalleled at gutting a ship. One must exercise caution, though, since these weapons have high thermal load and require a steady hand. Armour-piercing weapons prove particularly potent against heavily defended targets, such as the Lacon Type 9, a veritable piñata of booty. Cannons can also play an important role in a pilot's arsenal. Specially modified, they can counteract a ship's momentum, especially useful if their thrusters have gone offline. I tend to use a single small cannon with a four-shell special effect. This can be used to rapidly slow a ship. Too many shots, and you'll send it flying away from you. In terms of utility slots, a manifest scanner is of course essential to see what a potential target is carrying. For protracted chases, a wake scanner is also advisable. A pirate will want their vessel to remain lightweight and agile, so the standard lightweight alloys are recommended. They can be modified with heavy-duty engineering to maximise armour integrity. The power plant should be modified as needed, and desired changes will differ from vessel to vessel. If power usage is relatively low, for example when running mostly kinetic weapons, the armoured blueprint may be utilised to increase integrity and slightly improve power generation and thermal efficiency. The monstered experimental effect can provide an extra kick to the reactor if a little more power is needed. If this is insufficient, an overcharged power plant may be necessary, though these are notorious for their low integrity and poor heat efficiency. In order to outmanoeuvre prospective prey, A-rated thrusters are a must. Using the Dirty Drives blueprint with Drag Drive Experimental Effect will give the best manoeuvrability and speed available. The Frameshift Drive should be engineered for increased range. With the Mass Manager Experimental Effect for Classes 5 and higher, and the Deep Charge Effect for Classes 4 and below. This maximises jump range, so that any targets that manage to jump away can be successfully pursued. As with a standard combat ship, the power distributor should always be engineered to enhance charge rates. So when those pips are redistributed, the capacitors are full. A variety of experimental effects may be applied but those with higher draw weapons may need to use the superconduits effect for further increased recharge or cluster capacitor for increased capacitor size. Life support and sensors should be engineered to reduce their mass by as much as possible, as this will boost your speed and jump range. Shields should be prismatic if available. These are the strongest shields money can buy, but are only accessible to trusted lieutenants in the service of Princess Ashling Duval. If you can't get them, choose Biweave Shields for their quick recharge rate. However, shielding isn't the first concern of a pirate. After all, if you're taking a lot of fire, you're doing it wrong. 
Shield cell banks can be utilised to bolster shields in a pinch, particularly in the face of a security response. If possible, these should be specialised to reduce heat output, but rapid charge may be needed in well-policed systems. Of course, every pirate will need to be able to pull potential prey from supercruise, so a frameshift drive interdictor is essential. Engineer the module using the wide-angle blueprint for the best capture results. Engineer the collector and hatchbreaker limpet controllers to reduce as much weight as possible. Reducing weight increases agility. Even for a small amount, it's still worth investing in. Finally, fill those remaining optional module slots with cargo racks. The more the merrier, me hearties. We recommend leaving port with one-third cargo capacity filled with limpets. But these can also be synthesised in the field should they be exhausted. A mark with point defence can destroy limpets, so limpet efficiency can be hard to predict. The key to profitable piracy is the ability to find high-value targets. There are ships around carrying large quantities of silver and gold. However, the best are mining ships loaded with low-temperature diamonds. The most important part of being a successful pirate is finding systems that yield a good amount of loot in the shortest time possible. The EDDB database is your friend here. Use the following search terms to increase the chances of finding a worthwhile system. Only populated systems. Yes. Allegiance. Independent. Primary economy? Agriculture. Station filter? Having orbital. It makes landing easy. State? Boom. Increased number of worthwhile ships to pirate. It's best not to pirate in systems that are taking part in power play activities, as this will decrease the number of traders in the system. Independent systems without an allegiance to a power are best. Anecdotally, agricultural systems make the best hunting grounds. For some reason, traders are more likely to be carrying low-temperature diamonds in these systems. For prosperous farmers, presumably. Always try to pirate in systems that do not have far-flung stars or distant outposts, as the majority of ships present in those systems will be out of scanner range. We recommend choosing a system with asteroid belts and planetary rings as this will increase the likelihood that traders and miners will be carrying precious cargo. Anyone can build a properly equipped ship, but knowing the pirate's trade is important. Before any pirating can begin, the target must be interdicted. Wiggy B recommends spinning on the target ship's central axis. This motion acts to keep the target centred, assisting interdiction. This combination of rolling and pitching tends to be more effective than yawing, but a mixture should always be employed. Once you've snared your mark, it's time to get your hands dirty. If you are lucky enough to bag a low rank fully laden Type 9, then it's likely you'll be able to fill your entire cargo hold with diamonds from that one trip. Most runs are not as easy as this, and require two or three interdictions to fill up your hold. Method 1, the classic, disable thrusters and the bump stop. Take out the praise thrusters. Disabling the thrusters does not remove the vessel's momentum, so it'll begin to tumble on its final vector. To keep limpets safer and more efficient, 
one will need to manually reduce the target's speed and rotation. A technique called the bump stop can be used, using your own ship as a brake. Always bump stop a vessel from directly in front, as other angles will simply knock the target onto another vector, requiring further manipulation. Use a cannon with force shells to help reduce the velocity and spin of a stricken vessel first. Then use your ship as a buffer on the target, reducing its velocity even further, as this is more precise than using a cannon. Once the target is at a standstill, align with their cargo hatch to ensure that limpets have the shortest travel time possible. This will reduce limpet waste and increase the odds of completion and escape before the authorities arrive. One hatchbreaker limpet releases four to six units of cargo. For an efficient use of limpets and collection of cargo, the recommended ratio is one hatchbreaker limpet for every four units of cargo released. Shield tanking is best used pirates in small ships that can outmaneuver your larger ship. Method 2. The Shield Tank Shields with high capacity will stand up to continued fire for an extended period of time. This can be utilised in a more laid-back pirating technique. Four pips to systems will allow maximum shield integrity while the victim attempts to break them with their quaint little weapons. It rarely occurs to the pilot that they should flee. They're prone to becoming myopic in their attacks. This allows an easy steal. The victim will tend to move into a dominant firing position approximately 1.2 kilometers above and behind the pirate's ship. At this point, limpets may be deployed to commence the theft. From this point on, you can kick back and have a Lavian brandy whilst laughing at the pathetic and ineffective tantrum thrown by your target, says Wiggy Bee. There's a serious disadvantage with this technique, though. The limpets will have to travel around 2.4 kilometres to complete the trip. This can take in excess of 40 seconds per limpet. To loot a vessel with 100 units of cargo will take around 10 minutes using six collector limpets. Splash damage from missiles will destroy limpets, so take note of your mark's weaponry. They may also change their mind and decide to flee, so some pirates may wish to destroy their frameshift drive after initially collapsing their shields. Any budding pirate needs to hone their skills, and convoy beacons are perfect. The freight carried in a given system depends on the system's economy type, points out Wiggy B. Systems undergoing outbreaks of disease offer particularly rich pickings. Remember, it's best to attack convoys in lawless systems so you don't attract a police response. When the system's lawless, multiple targets can be pirated without authority interference, and if a target's accidentally destroyed, a murder bounty will not be issued. A pirate's ideal hunting ground for this type of beacon is a high-population system in an outbreak state with an extraction economy. This is a rare combination, and the list of candidates will change from day to day. Low-population systems with digits in the mere single thousands should be avoided. High-security systems are tricky waters for pirates. Interdicting will result in a fine, and shooting a clean ship will attract the authorities. The appearance of the fuzz is a distraction you certainly don't need, so be sure to steal quickly in these systems. A better tactic is to chase your quarry to less policed space, 
interdict them, then instead of firing, allow them to high wake out, jump to another system, and follow them. You can find out where they've gone with the wake scanner. Only when the quarry jumps to an anarchy system should they be attacked. Look at your target panel. If it says lawless in red letters, loot away. If not, interdict them again to chase them to a new system. This technique best works around the edge of the bubble, where there are a large number of uninhabited systems. Remember, a typical Type 9 will have a jump range of about 9 light-years, so a starting system should be more than 9 light-years away from a populated system. This guarantees that the trader has to jump through a lawless system in order to get to a populated one. Occasionally, a mark will try to be smart, dropping out of supercruise next to a star in the hopes of shaking off their attacker. Simply follow the low-wake signature. Piracy is an involved activity. It needs specialised equipment, and experience and skill go a long way. Hopefully, this guide can get you started. Just don't say we told you to. The Phoenix Campaign The children of Raxler are a household name in today's galaxy. This month, one of the members, guest contributor Saul, shares what they've been up to. The children of Raxler, C.O.R., and their late leader, Salome, were once well known for attacking targets known to be affiliated with the club. A small group of powerful, unknown individuals which treats the galaxy like a puppet, constantly pulling at strings and manipulating its populace for an unknown agenda. On the 29th of April, 3303, a mad dash across the stars saw the fiery demise of the children of Raxler's leader, Salome, with her untimely death much of the children of Raxler retreated back into the shadows, feeling vulnerable with a large portion of the galaxy watching them. Since this event, however, the children of Raxler have not been sitting idly in their starports. They have been working, studying, and watching the goings-on of the galaxy and its mysterious puppeteers. To mark their rise from the shadows, they have created a series of operations under the umbrella name of The Phoenix Campaign in order to continue the fight against the club. Insiders at the Children of Raxlow's strategy team, and the man behind the operations themselves, Commander Alistair Fox, have provided some details regarding their attempts to fight back at the shadowy figures. Whether reading through Gownet articles and local news broadcasts, or following black flights through their wakes, the strategy team locates targets with known or heavily suspected club affiliation. One such example of this was Operation Primum Non Nocere, a coordinated strike on a research facility with ties to heavy, illegal human experimentation, something that the club is not averse to doing. The facility in question was known as the Janus Corp Medical Research Facility, located in HIP 106288, above the rings of the third planet. The children of Raxler first became aware of this facility after following up on rumours of a listening post in system HIP 105408, near planet 2b. The satellite holds a message logged from someone named Tommy, apparently a patient who had escaped the Janus Corp medical research facility. My name... Tommy, I was... big journeying... out to see... stars... something wrong... skateboards launched... they found us, so... Most of them 
No, I'm fine. No, no drugs. Darkness and dreams. Bright light in my eyes. Experimenting on people. Using progenitor cells and other worse kinds of procedures. They say it's... Is it to slow aging? I don't believe them. Not sure how I got away. Was sure they would find me. Some big corporate facility. I... If you are hearing this, they... I, I, I can't go back. Research installation. Three. Gas giant. H-I-P. One, zero, six, two, eight, eight. Help us! Following the information provided within this message led interested parties to the research facility. Multiple logs were discovered there, recorded by both medical and security staff regarding the operations of the facility. Within the logs are mentions of a missing patient who is part of the control group for the research tests, identified as Tommy. The children of Raxler launched a preliminary investigation into the facility. After assessing their data, they led a surgical strike on the location to disable critical equipment and to hamper distribution of progenitor cells within the system. It was an attempt to temporarily halt illegal human experimentation and to send a clear message to the club that the children of Raxler will not tolerate their continued operations and that they will not be allowed to treat humanity and its property as tools for their unknown agenda. Following the strike's success, the children of Raxler moved to a more humanitarian goal with their Phoenix campaign. An opportunity to improve the lives of those who need shelter from the chaos of the galaxy. Many veteran independent pilots will remember former President of the Federation, Jasmina Halsey, and her disappearance some years ago. After her reappearance, she began to make waves as a politician turned humanitarian. In February of 3303, she partnered with the Yumkumkabi Purple Life Industry to establish a centre for refugees looking to escape from harmful situations in their day-to-day -day lives and to instate a small governing body to oversee this goal. This effort was a resounding success with the construction of a megaship, the Harmony, and the creation of the independent Empyrean Foundation to oversee its continual operation. However, in July of 3304, it came to the attention of the children of Raxler that the Harmony had undergone a change of hands and was no longer under the control of the Independent Imperial Foundation. Instead, a faction known as the GCRV 62586 Union Party, G6UP, had taken command of the megaship. The children of Raxler, suspecting corruption, moved swiftly to plan and execute an operation known as Operation Lighthouse, to place the Harmony back in Empyrean Foundation jurisdiction. On the 9th of July, 3304, the children of Raxler made their move into the Yumkunkabi system and began their support of the Empyrean Foundation. After consulting with executives of the Foundation, the children of Raxler began an initiative delivering data for the independent faction in an attempt to raise awareness among local populace of their efforts. After nearly a week of constant support, on the 15th of July, 3304, the children of Raxler saw their efforts begin to bear fruit. The Yumkumkabi Progressive Party, after enough political pressure, stepped forward and offered the Empyrean Foundation control of their security installation, King Terminal. This was seen as a step in the right direction, as not only had the general populace begun to see the benefit of supporting the Empyrean Foundation, but so too had its one-time political adversary. 
The Empyrean Foundation moved swiftly to turn the former military facility into a refugee centre. The independent faction was now better equipped to handle refugee reception than it had been before the takeover. The Children of Raxler continued to push forward with their campaign to pass the Harmony back into the hands of the Empyrean Foundation. After nearly a month of constant effort, calling on fellow independent factions for aid, on the 30th of July 3304, the Empyrean Foundation filed a vote of no confidence against G6UP, with the backing of the entire Yonkonkabi system, and attained ownership of the system's primary station, Dirichlet Orbital. Three more months passed before there had been enough political pressure on the G6UP to hand the Harmony over to the Empyrean Foundation. The move was surprising at the time, given how fiercely the G6UP had held onto their assets. Allegedly, they had felt so much pressure from the galactic community that they could not, in good conscience, continue their campaign against the Empyrean Foundation and those it intended to help. On the 21st of September, 3304, the final preparations were made, and the Harmony was handed over to Empyrean with surprising graciousness. To this day, the Empyrean Foundation retains control over both the Harmony and Yom Konkabi, aiding countless refugees daily who are looking to distance themselves from the chaos of their previous lives. The children of Raxler continue to search for potential corrupt targets today. According to rumours at the time of writing, there is an operation slated to extract data from the Aegis military installation, the Sentinel. The children of Raxler also continue to search for opportunities to aid and serve the less fortunate within the galaxy, even looking to the smaller human enclave of Colonia for systems where their help might be needed. The Phoenix campaign signifies not only a new era for the children of Raxler, but also a new age for truth and humanitarianism. The Powers Ashling Duval, the girl behind the princess. Princess Aisling Duval, called by some the People's Princess, is arguably the most popular politician in the galaxy. More Palace Federation members have pledged to her cause than any other galactic power, no doubt due in part to her photogenic appearance and humanitarian politics. She's known for charity work and her controversial opposition to slavery within the Empire. However, besides the occasional candid interview, the princess remains enigmatic. The Duval family guards its privacy, security around each member of the imperial family is tight, with no information released without permission and oversight. Obtaining access to the princess or anyone who knows her is a difficult task even for an imperial journalist with a pristine reputation. For a reporter from a magazine like Sagittarius Eye, the chances are even slimmer. It was early morning when your correspondent arrived at the residence of one Zephira Trelivan, a woman who claims to have known Princess Aisling. Permission to travel planetside and visit an individual who spent a part of her life in direct service to an Imperial Princess is a rare opportunity. As you know, Princess Aisling is very involved in politics. After her father stepped down from the scene, the entire responsibility for her people and representing the Duval name was left on her shoulders. This alone is taking a huge part of her time. Besides her responsibilities as the Duval heir, she also plays an active role in various organizations, whose missions include helping Imperial citizens, campaigning against narcotics, or her own anti-slavery organization, Unchain. To be honest, she rarely has a free day when she can relax. The princess's stance against slavery is well known. She has campaigned for its abolition for most of her adult life, pitching herself against powerful interests like Senate veteran Zemina Torval. 
Her high-profile opposition to such an entrenched aspect of Imperial life has, at times, put her in danger. We asked Zephira about an attempt last year on Aisling Duval's life. This cowardly act happened during a fundraiser for the Unchained Organization in the Zol system. Imperial Internal Security Services intercepted encrypted communications that morning, but by the time it was decrypted, the gala was already on the way. They wanted to evacuate her immediately, but she refused. Hundreds of people were in danger, she said, and she couldn't leave them to die. So she ordered her security chief to find and disarm those explosives quietly and went on to continue the fundraiser. It was not the first time an attempt on the life of a famous member of the Senate has been made. In 3302, Denton Patrius was the target, a man Aisling Duval had once courted. Zephyr refused to be drawn on the princess's personal life, nor would she comment upon the abrupt cancellation of her planned wedding to Jordan Rochester last year. Some observers have suggested that Aisling's sunny exterior and excellent press management are more considered than her boosters would admit. It has been suggested that beneath the hollow friendly smile and easily digestible policies is a cunning political operator whose manipulation of the press is as calculating as it is deft. Zephira downplayed this interpretation, instead focusing on Aisling's political ambitions. Princess Aisling Duval will change politics and law. She will finally end slavery and make sure that imperial citizens live long, healthy and happy lives under Duval rule. Utopian ideals aside, her ideology puts her surprisingly close to Shadow President Felicia Winters of the Federation, though the latter is less frequently dismissed as a political lightweight. Lovers of individual liberty and equality are drawn to Aisling. For many, she is emblematic of a new empire, more outward-looking, egalitarian and meritocratic. Aisling Duval is certainly one of the empire's modernizers widely tipped as a favorite to succeed Arissa Lavigny Duval, should the throne become vacant. The princess is the most popular political figure among Pilots' Federation members. Rare Commodities Spotlight Eden Apples of Ariel According to ancient mythology, when Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden, they knew nothing of pain, hunger, suffering, or death. But when Lucifer tempted them with an apple from the tree of knowledge, their world was changed. God cast them out from paradise, and they were forced to live as mortals, living, breeding, and dying in the dirt for generations until our civilization reached out for the stars. Most Ancient scholars interpreted the story of the apple as a metaphor for humanity achieving sentience and self-awareness. Many believe that this was a replicated myth, comparable to Prometheus's gift of fire or Pandora's box. However, this has not stopped some theologically-minded adventurers from seeking a return to the mythical Eden, whether on earth or in the heavens. When humans first colonized the aerial system and descended on the planet Shangjun, they came seeking a new beginning. The first pioneers wanted new lives for themselves and their descendants, but some amongst them held beliefs in the old scriptures, and when they discovered a beautiful silver-tinged fruit growing from alien trees in an alien forest on an alien planet, 
they named them after something familiar from their past, an apple. The first humans to eat the apples of Ariel were not enlightened in the same way that Adam and Eve had been, but they did suffer similar consequences. The native fruit proved incompatible with the human digestive system along with the rest of the planet's environment. People died before they learned any better, and so ignorance and stupidity returned to curse humanity once more. Shangjun is a terraformed world, an early project of imperial scientists and engineers. As the planet was tamed, the dangers of its past became novelties and trinkets for the generations that followed. Shangjun will never be a paradise. The dense atmosphere left behind by the artificial engineering process ensures that day-to-day -day life on the planet is arduous. But something of its early mystery remains. One part of that mystery is the Eden apple. The native fruit has been genetically modified into a sugary delicacy that is much more reminiscent of the old earth variety but has retained its silvery sheen, which gives it a heavenly or magical quality. The taste of an Eden apple is zesty and fresh. It is usually eaten as an appetizer, without garnish or sauce. Any type of cooking or juicing the fruit is said to blunt its flavour, reducing it to mushy blandness. Some chefs still experiment with the apple, seeking a preparation method that will unlock its true potential as an ingredient for the ultimate meal. Lab Notes The Technetium Mystery Thignetium, atomic number 43. To the untrained mind, Thignetium is nothing special. Sure, it has a couple of specific uses for the average pilot. It can be used to synthesize particularly potent plasma accelerator or repeater ammunition, or to increase the fuel efficiency of SRVs. Many, however, never bother with premium level synthesis, and so their Thignetium reserve will sit in their storage gathering dust. For scientists, however, this element poses one of physics' greatest modern mysteries. Technetium was one of the last transition metals to be discovered. It was not until 1937 until it was finally produced. Ancient history to us, perhaps, but considering that this was only eight years before humanity's first ever nuclear detonation, it was certainly a late arrival in terms of chemistry and physics. But why? Well. Our more semantically versed readers may have figured out the reason for this from the element's name. Tech is a term we are all familiar with, conjuring images of fantastical technology, see, and engineering excellence. It derives from the ancient Greek technitos, meaning synthetic or artificial. Essentially, the only way for us to attain technetium on Earth was through technological means, generally byproducts of nuclear fission power plants. This is because there are no stable, naturally occurring isotopes of the element. While the fully ionized state of technetium-97 is stable, this isn't produced naturally, at least not in noticeable quantities. Technetium-98 boasts the longest half-life of any isotope, at an impressive sounding 4.2 million years. This, however, is a pittance in comparison to the lifetime of stars and planets, so we shouldn't really find it naturally. In fact, if we take a look at the cradle of humanity, Earth, 
We can calculate that at any one time, there are only about 18,000 tons of technetium in the planet's entire crust, as part of various radioactive decay chains. Comparing this to the total mass of somewhere around 20 quintillion tons, that's less than 0.000000000001% of the planet. Yet, as any pro SRV driver will tell you, technetium seems to be rather common. Sure, it won't decay within a pilot's lifetime, assuming it's the correct isotope, of course, but it really shouldn't be there. Exactly why humanity has seemed to pop up around the time of technetium boom is truly a baffling question. Perhaps some exotic stellar events happen to be frequent relatively recently, or cosmically, extremely recently, in the Milky Way's history, or perhaps there is some as yet undiscovered natural method of production, which simply does not occur on Earth. Either way, it is always important to realize that, even in an age in which we can hop between stars and the time it takes to sip a cup of tea, there are still some relatively primitive physics questions that haven't been solved for generations. Hopefully though, you'll all still trust your frameshift drives. Thank you for listening to issue 20 of Sagittarius I magazine. This issue featured articles written by Andrew Gaspar, Alan Stride, Wanzok, GW, Mac Winston, McNichol, Miniwatu, Saul, Souverine and Ziggy, and was edited by Adernis, Alan Stride, Miniwatu and Souverine. This audio edition featured the voices of Adernis, Burr, Daryl Nar, Edelweiss, Maya Faye, Rini, Rosetta Stone, Souverine, Tokuso, Wotherspoon and Yamix, and was edited by Adernis, Dr. Toxic, Edelweiss and Souverine. Music was composed and performed by Dustin, Midnight, Driscoll and Tokuso. We would like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by Commanders for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Search.